Chapter Fifteen, Part One, of Industrial Biography: Ironworkers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. James Naismith. By hammer and hand, all arts doth stand. Hammermen's motto. The founder of the Scotch family of Naismith is said to have derived his name from the following circumstance. In the course of the feuds which raged for some time between the Scotch kings and their powerful subjects, the Earls of Douglas, a rencontre took place one day on the outskirts of a border village, where the king's adherents were worsted. One of them took refuge in the village smithy, where, hastily disguising himself and donning a spare leathern apron, he pretended to be engaged in assisting the smith with his work, when a party of the Douglas followers rushed in. They glanced at the pretended workman at the anvil, and observed him deliver a blow upon it so unskilfully that the hammer-shaft broke in his hand. On this one of the Douglas men rushed at him, calling out, "'You're nay, smith!' The assailed man seized his sword, which lay conveniently at hand, and defended himself so vigorously that he shortly killed his assailant while the smith brained another with his hammer, and a party of the king's men having come to their help, the rest were speedily overpowered. The royal forces then rallied, and their temporary defeat was converted into a victory. The king bestowed a grant of land on his follower, Nay Smith, who assumed for his arms a sword between two hammers with broken shafts, and the motto, Non Arte, sed Marte, as if to disclaim the art of the smith in which he had failed and to emphasise the superiority of the warrior. Such is said to be the traditional origin of the family of Naismith of Posso in Peeblesshire, who continue to bear the same name and arms. It is remarkable that the inventor of the steam-hammer should have so effectually contradicted the name he bears, and reversed the motto of his family. For so far from being Naismith, he may not inappropriately be designated the very Vulcan of the nineteenth century. His hammer is a tool of immense power and pliancy, but for which we must have stopped short in many of those gigantic engineering works which are among the marvels of the age in which we live. It possesses so much precision and delicacy that it will chip the end of an egg resting in a glass on the anvil without breaking it, while it delivers a blow of ten tons with such a force as to be felt shaking the parish. It is therefore with a high degree of appropriateness that Mr. Naismith has discarded the feckless hammer with the broken shafts, and assumed for his emblem his own magnificent steam-hammer, at the same time reversing the family motto which he has converted into non marte, said arte. James Naismith belongs to a family whose genius in art has long been recognised. His father, Alexander Naismith of Edinburgh, was a landscape painter of great eminence, whose works are sometimes confounded with those of his son Patrick, called the English Hobbemer, though his own merits are peculiar and distinctive. The elder Naismith was also an admirable portrait painter, and his head of Burns, the best ever painted of the poet, bears ample witness. His daughters, the Mrs. Naismith, were highly skilled painters of landscape, and their works are well known and much prized. James, the youngest of the family, inherits the same love of art, though his name is more extensively known as a worker and inventor in iron, 
He was born at Edinburgh on the 19th of August, 1808, and his attention was early directed to mechanics by the circumstance of this being one of his father's hobbies. Besides being an excellent painter, Mr. Naismith had a good general knowledge of architecture and civil engineering, and could work at the lathe and handle tools with the dexterity of a mechanic. He employed nearly the whole of his spare time in a little workshop which adjoined his studio, where he encouraged his youngest son to work with him in all sorts of materials. Among his visitors at the studio were Professor Leslie, Patrick Miller of Dolswinton, and other men of distinction. He assisted Mr. Miller in his early experiments with paddle-boats, which eventually led to the invention of the steamboat. It was a great advantage for the boy to be trained by a father who so loved excellence in all its forms, and could minister to his love of mechanics by his own instruction and practice. James used to drink in with pleasure and profit the conversation which passed between his father and his visitors on scientific and mechanical subjects, and as he became older, the resolve grew stronger in him every day that he would be a mechanical engineer and nothing else. At a proper age he was sent to the high school, then as now celebrated for the excellence of its instruction, and there he laid the foundation of a sound and liberal education. But he has himself told the simple story of his early life in such graphic terms that we feel we cannot do better than quote his own words. I had the good luck, he says, to have for a school companion the son of an iron-founder. Every spare hour I could command was devoted to visits to his father's iron-foundry, where I delighted to watch the various processes of moulding, iron-melting, casting, forging, pattern-making, and other smith and metal-work. And although I was only about twelve years old at the time, I used to lend a hand in which hearty zeal did a good deal to make up for want of strength. I look back to the Saturday afternoon spent in the workshops of that small foundry as an important part of my education. I did not trust to reading about such and such things. I saw and handled them, and all the ideas in connection with them became permanent in my mind. I also obtained there, what was of much value to me in after life, a considerable acquaintance with the nature and character of workmen. By the time I was fifteen I could work and turn out really respectable jobs in wood, brass, iron and steel. Indeed, in the working of the latter inestimable material, I had, at a very early age, eleven or twelve, acquired considerable proficiency. As that was the pre-Lucifer match period, the possession of a steel and tinder-box was quite a patent of nobility among boys. So I used to forge old files into steels in my father's little workshop and harden them, and produce such first-rate neat little articles in that line that I became quite famous among my school companions, and many a task have I excused me by bribing the monitor, whose grim sense of duty never could withstand the glimpse of a steel. My first essay at making a steam-engine was when I was fifteen. I then made a real working steam-engine, one and three-quarter inches diameter cylinder, and eight inches stroke which not only could act, but really did some useful work, for I made it grind the oil colours which my father required for his painting. Steam-engine models, now so common, were exceedingly scarce in those days, and very difficult to be had. And as the demand for them arose, I found it both delightful and profitable to make them, as well as the sectional models of steam-engines, which I introduced for the purpose of exhibiting the movements of all the parts, 
both exterior and interior. With the results of the sale of such models, I was enabled to pay the price of tickets of admission to the lecture on natural philosophy and chemistry, delivered in the University of Edinburgh. About the same time, 1826, I was so happy as to be employed by Professor Leslie in making models and portions of apparatus required by him for his lectures and philosophical investigations, and I also had the inestimable good fortune to secure his friendship. His admirably clear manner of communicating a knowledge of the fundamental principles of mechanical science rendered my intercourse with him of the utmost importance to myself. A hearty, cheerful, earnest desire to toil in his service caused him to take pleasure in instructing me by occasional explanations of what might otherwise have remained obscure. About the years 1827 and 1828, the subject of steam carriages for common roads occupied much of the attention of the public. Many tried to solve the problem. I made a working model of an engine which performed so well that some friends determined to give me the means of making one on a larger scale. This I did, and I shall never forget the pleasure and the downright hard work I had in producing, in the autumn of 1828, at an outlay of sixty pounds, a complete steam carriage that ran many a mile with eight persons on it. After keeping it in action two months, to the satisfaction of all who were interested in it, my friends allowed me to dispose of it, and I sold it a great bargain, after which the engine was used in driving a small factory. I may mention that in the engine I employed the waste steam to cause an increased draught by its discharge up the chimney. This important use of the waste steam had been introduced by George Stevenson some years before, though entirely unknown to me. The earnest desire which I cherished of getting forward in the business of life induced me to turn my attention to obtaining employment in some of the great engineering establishments of the day, at the head of which, in my fancy, as well as in reality, stood that of Henry Maudsley of London. It was the summit of my ambition to get work in that establishment but as my father had not the means of paying a premium, I determined to try what I could do towards attaining my object by submitting to Mr. Maudsley actual specimens of my capability as a young workman and draftsman. To this end I set to work and made a small steam engine, every part of which was the result of my own handiwork, including the casting and the forging of the several parts. This I turned out in such style as I should even now be proud of. My sample drawings were, I might say, highly respectable. Armed with such means of obtaining the good opinion of the great Henry Maudsley, on the 19th of May, 1829, I sailed for London in a Leith smack, and after an eight days' voyage saw the metropolis for the first time. I made bold to call on Mr. Maudsley, and told him my simple tale. He desired me to bring my models for him to look at. I did so and when he came to me I could see by the expression of his cheerful, well-remembered countenance that I had attained my object. He then and there appointed me to be his own private workman, to assist him in his little paradise of a workshop, furnished with the models of improved machinery and engineering tools of which he had been the great originator. He left me to arrange as to the wages with his chief cashier, Mr. Robert Young, and on the first Saturday evening I accordingly went to the counting-house to inquire of him about my pay. He asked me what would satisfy me. 
Knowing the value of the situation I had obtained, and having a very modest notion of my worthiness to occupy it, I said that if you would not consider ten shillings a week too much, I thought I could do very well with that. I suppose he concluded that I had some means of my own to live on besides the ten shillings a week which I had asked. He little knew that I had determined not to cost my father another farthing when I left home to begin the world on my own account. My proposal was at once acceded to, and well do I remember the pride and delight I felt when I carried to my three shillings a week lodging that night my first wages. Ample they were in my idea, for I knew how little I could live on, and was persuaded that by strict economy I could easily contrive to make the money support me. To help me in this object, I contrived a small cooking apparatus, which I forthwith got made by a tinsmith in Lambeth at a cost of six shillings, and by its aid I managed to keep the eating and drinking part of my private account within three shillings and sixpence per week, or four shillings at the outside. I had three meat dinners a week, and generally four rice and milk dinners, all of which were cooked by my little apparatus, which I set in action after breakfast. The oil cost me not quite a halfpenny a day. The meat dinners consisted of a stew of from a half to three-quarters of a pound of a leg of beef, the meat costing three and a half pence per pound, which, with sliced potatoes and a little onion, and as much water as just covered all, with a sprinkle of salt and black pepper, by the time I returned to dinner at half-past six, furnished a repast in every respect as good as my appetite. For breakfast I had coffee and a due proportion of quartan loaf. After the first year of my employment under Mr. Maudsley, my wages were raised to fifteen shillings a week, and I then, but not till then, indulged in the luxury of butter to my bread. I am the more particular in all this to show you that I was a thrifty housekeeper, although only a lodger in a three shillings room. I have the old apparatus by me yet, and I shall have another dinner out of it, ere I am a year older, out of regard to days that were full of the real romance of life. On the death of Henry Maudsley in 1831, I passed over to the service of his worthy partner, Mr. Joshua Field, and acted as his draughtsman, much to my advantage, until the end of that year, when I returned to Edinburgh to construct a small stock of engineering tools for the purpose of enabling me to start in business on my own account. This occupied me until the spring of 1833, and during the interval I was accustomed to take in jobs to execute in my little workshop in Edinburgh, so as to obtain the means of completing my stock of tools. In June 1834 I went to Manchester, and took a flat of an old mill in Dale Street, where I began business. In two years my stock had so increased as to overload the floor of the old building to such an extent that the landlord, Mr. Wren, became alarmed, especially as the tenant below me, a glass-cutter, had a visit from the end of a twenty-horse engine-beam one morning among his cut tumblers. To set their anxiety at rest, I went out that evening to Patricroft, and took a look at a rather choice bit of land, bounded on one side by the canal, and on the other by the Liverpool and Manchester Railway. By the end of the week I had secured a lease on the site for nine hundred and ninety-nine years. By the end of the month my woodsheds were erected. The ring of the hammer on the smith's anvil was soon heard all over the place, and the Bridgewater foundry was fairly under way. There I toiled right heartily until December the 31st, 1856, 
when I retired to enjoy in active leisure the reward of a laborious life, during which, with the blessing of God, I enjoyed much true happiness through the hearty love which I always had for my profession. And I trust I may be allowed to say, without undue vanity, that I have left behind me some useful results of my labours in those inventions with which my name is identified, which have had no small share in the accomplishment of some of the greatest mechanical works of our age. If Mr. Naismith had accomplished nothing more than the invention of his steam-hammer, it would have been enough to found a reputation. Professor Tomlinson described it as one of the most perfect of artificial machines and noblest triumphs of mind over matter that modern English engineers have yet developed. The hand-hammer has always been an important tool, and in the form of the stone kelt it was perhaps the first invented. When the hammer of iron superseded that of stone, it was found practicable in the hands of a cunning workman to execute by its means metalwork of great beauty and even delicacy. But since the invention of cast-iron and the manufacture of wrought-iron in large masses, the art of hammer-working has almost become lost and great artists, such as Matzis of Antwerp and Rukas of Nuremberg were, no longer think it worth their while to expend time and skill in working on so humble a material as wrought iron. It is evident from the marks of care and elaborate design which many of these early works exhibit that the workman's heart was in his work, and that his object was not merely to get it out of hand, but to execute it in first-rate artistic style. When the use of iron extended, and larger ironwork came to be forged, for cannon, tools, and machinery, the ordinary hand-hammer was found insufficient, and the helve, or forge-hammer, was invented. This was usually driven by a water-wheel, or by oxen, or horses. The tilt-hammer was another form in which it was used, the smaller kinds being worked by the foot. Among Watt's various inventions was a tilt-hammer of considerable power, which he first worked by means of a water-wheel, and afterwards by a steam-engine regulated by a flywheel. His first hammer of this kind was a hundred and twenty pounds in weight. It was raised eight inches before making each blow. Watt afterwards made a tilt-hammer for Mr. Wilkinson of Bradley Forge of seven and a half hundred weight, and it made three hundred blows a minute. Other improvements were made in the hammer from time to time, but no material alteration was made in the power by which it was worked until Mr. Naismith took it in hand, and applying to it the force of steam, at once provided the worker in iron with the most formidable of machine tools. This important invention originated as follows. In the early part of 1837, the directors of the Great Western Steamship Company sent Mr. Francis Humphreys, their engineer, to consult Mr. Naismith as to some engineering tools of unusual size and power which were required for the construction of the engines of the Great Britain steamship. They had determined to construct those engines on the vertical trunk-engine principle, in accordance with Mr. Humphrey's designs, and very complete works were erected by them at their Bristol dockyard for the execution of the requisite machinery, the most important of the tools being supplied by Naismith and Gaskell. The engines were in hand when a difficulty arose with respect to the enormous paddle-shaft of the vessel which was of such a size of forging as had never before been executed. 
Mr. Humphreys applied to the largest engineering firms throughout the country for tenders on the price at which they would execute this part of work. But to his surprise and dismay, he found that not one of the firms he applied to would undertake so large a forging. In this dilemma, he wrote to Mr. Naismith on the 24th of November, 1838, informing him of this unlooked-for difficulty. I find, said he, there is not a forge-hammer in England or Scotland powerful enough to forge the paddle-shaft of the engines for the Great Britain. What am I to do? Do you think I might dare use cast-iron? This letter immediately set Mr. Naismith a-thinking. How was it that existing hammers were incapable of forging a wrought-iron shaft of thirty inches diameter? Simply because of their want of compass, or range and fall as well as power of blow. A few moments' rapid thought satisfied him that it was by rigidly adhering to the old traditional form of hand-hammer, of which the tilt, though driven by steam, was only but a modification, that the difficulty had arisen. When even the largest hammer was tilted up to its full height, its range was so small that when a piece of work of considerable size was placed on the anvil, the hammer became gagged, and on such an occasion, when the forging required the most powerful blow, it received next to no blow at all, the clear space for fall being almost entirely occupied by the work on the anvil. The obvious remedy was to invent some method by which a block of iron should be lifted to a sufficient height above the object on which it was desired to strike a blow, and let the block fall down upon the work, guiding it in its descent by such simple means as should give the required precision in the percussive action of the falling mass. Following out this idea, Mr. Naismith at once sketched on paper his steam-hammer, having it clearly before him in his mind's eye a few minutes after receiving Mr. Humphrey's letter narrating his unlooked-for difficulty. The hammer, as thus sketched, consisted of first an anvil on which to rest the work, second a block of iron constituting the hammer or blow-giving part, third an inverted steam-cylinder to whose piston-rod the block was attached. All that was then required to produce by such means a most effective hammer was simply to admit steam in the cylinder so as to act on the underside of the piston, and so raise the block attached to the piston-rod, and by a simple contrivance to let the steam escape, and so permit the block rapidly to descend by its own gravity upon the work on the anvil. Such, in a few words, is the rationale of the steam-hammer. By the same day's post, Mr. Naismith wrote to Mr. Humphreys, enclosing a sketch of the invention by which he proposed to forge the Great Britain paddle-shaft. Mr. Humphreys showed it to Mr. Brunel, the engineer-in-chief of the company, to Mr. Guppy, the managing director, and to others interested in the undertaking, by all of whom it was heartily approved. Mr. Naismith gave permission to communicate his plans to such forge proprietors as might feel disposed to erect such a hammer to execute the proposed work the only condition which he made being that, in the event of the hammer being adopted, he was to be allowed to supply it according to his own design. The paddle-shaft of the Great Britain was, however, never forged. About that time the substitution of the screw for the paddle-wheel as a means of propulsion of steam-vessels was attracting much attention, and the performances of the Archimedes were so successful as to induce Mr. Brunel to recommend his directors to adopt the new power. They yielded to his entreaty, 
the great engines which Mr. Humphreys had designed were accordingly set aside, and he was required to produce fresh designs of engines suited for screw propulsion. The result was fatal to Mr. Humphreys. The labour, the anxiety, and perhaps the disappointment, proved too much for him, and a brain fever carried him off, so that neither his great paddle-shaft nor Mr. Naismith's steam-hammer to forge it was any longer needed. End of chapter 15, part 1